Today's episode is for the boy moms, but girl moms, I really think you're going to like it too. We're talking about what it means to be an emotionally healthy man. If you're raising boys, you're going to want to have a deeper understanding of this. If you're raising girls, you'll want them to. In case you don't know David Thomas, he is the Director of Family Counseling at Daystar Counseling Ministries in Nashville, Tennessee. He's the co-author of 10 books, including the best-selling Wild Things, The Art of Nurturing Boys, and Are My Kids on Track? The 12 Emotional, Social, and Spiritual Milestones Your Child Needs to Reach, as well as his latest two titles that are available now, Raising Emotionally Strong Boys and Strong and Smart, A Boy's Guide to Building Healthy Emotions. He also happens to be one of my go-tos for all things raising boys. And if you've listened to this podcast or been around Million Praying Moms for any length of time, you've heard him before. I know you're going to love listening to him talk about our boys and their emotions. David is a frequent guest on national television and podcasts, including his own called Raising Boys and Girls. He's been featured in publications like The Washington Post and USA Today, and he speaks across the country. He and his wife, Connie, have a daughter, twin sons, and a yellow lab named Owen. I'm Brooke McLaughlin, an author, speaker, teacher, and small town girl from the mountains of Appalachia. Over the years, I've had the privilege of encouraging countless moms toward a richer prayer life, helping them catch a vision for the partnership God invites them into as they become praying moms. Prayer is action all by itself, and our prayers can impact the people we love most for generations to come. I created the Million Praying Moms podcast because prayer is one of the most overlooked parts of Christian parenting today. Let's change that together. My goal is to help you see prayer not as a last resort, but as your first and best response. If you have questions about prayer or motherhood, if you need help taking the first steps toward a praying life, or if you want to know how to pray for specific needs affecting our children in today's culture, you're in the right place, friend. Prayer warrior or mom who's just starting the journey, all are welcome here. Let's get started. Did you know that peace is not a feeling? According to Galatians 5, through 23, peace, along with other important things like love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control are fruit, not feelings. That means a seed of peace was planted in you the moment you became a believer in Jesus. And if it's a seed, it can grow. If you often feel like your life is an emotional roller coaster and struggle to find consistent peace, join me in the Enjoy God's Word online women's Bible conference, December 1st through 3rd. The conference is a deep dive Bible study of the book of Titus, but I'll be teaching a breakout session called Understanding Biblical Peace. Many Christians feel like their peace is dependent upon the roller coaster of life. In my breakout session, I'm going to show you how to get off. We'll learn to stop stuffing a worldly definition of peace into a biblical one and together find out what true biblical peace really is. For more information, visit today's show notes or millionprayingmoms.com forward slash biblical peace. That's one word, millionprayingmoms.com forward slash biblical peace. Well, David, welcome back to the show. We are so glad to have you here. Tell everybody a little bit about you in case they don't know who you are, your family, your ministry, what you do. Help us get to know you a little bit. 
Well, I want to begin by saying at the top of my resume, I want it to be said that I am a huge fan of yours and this ministry and grateful for any opportunity you and I have to intersect and talk about boys. So that's going to be at the top of the list of who I am. And underneath that, I will say I am a proud son, husband, and father. I have three young adult kids. I have all three college age kids right now, which still feels strange to say out loud, but is 100% true, evidenced by my gray hair. And I am also a practicing therapist. I have been a part of an amazing practice here in Nashville, Tennessee called Daystar Counseling Ministries for the past 25 years and work with this incredible team of people that I learned so much from on a daily basis. I have currently, I think, 14 human colleagues and five canine colleagues. We have therapy dogs on staff at our practice who are hands down the kids' favorites. We're all very aware that we're pretty low in the pecking order. In fact, I've worked with kids over the years who couldn't remember my name, but just referred to me as Owen's dad because that's my yellow lab. And I'll answer to that on any given day. <laughs> so, I love that. <laughs> I know. And, and you know, even sharing that gives you a little bit of glimpse, uh, a glimpse into my work in that we do the work really differently in that, you know, it's a very intentional decision to have dogs on staff. We work in a house rather than an office complex. And if any parent listening has ever taken a kid you love to counseling, you know it can be an overwhelming experience if you've ever been to counseling yourself. And so we try to do as much as we can to make it disarming and feel safe. So it's why we've got the dogs there, why we're in a house, and why I have loved being at this place for the last 25 years. And then thankful out of that work that I have had the opportunity to write some books and talk about what I have learned from just sitting front row with kids and families for all these decades. And get opportunities to travel around the country and talk with parents on different aspects of development and understanding kids in different ways. So just incredibly grateful for the work I get to do in this world. Thankful to get to talk about it with you today. Yeah, absolutely. David, you know that this ministry has been a huge fan of what you are doing there in Nashville for many, many years. And some of our listeners today will recognize you because they will have listened to you before several times on what we've been able to share. And every single time we have you on the show, you bring something so valuable. And I can't wait to talk about what we're going to talk about today. And I just, you know, you and I are both dog lovers and it's kind of a running joke on this show and in anything that I do that's live, it's like Winterbrook's dog's going to bark because <laughs> there's nothing I can do to stop that. There is no place in my house that I can go. I do work from home. So like there's nowhere in my house I can go that you wouldn't be able to hear them if they barked. And so I love talking to another dog lover who recognizes the values of that and, and what animals bring to our lives too. So I just love you. I love what you're doing. And uh, I'm really happy to have you on the show today. You have written a new book, correct? I have. I have. Okay. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about that. It's called Raising Emotionally Strong Boys, which I think is a fantastic topic for today's day and time. So give us just a little bit of an overview of what the book is about as we get started. I'd love to. Brooke, I... I wrote a book back in 2009 called Wild Things, The Art of Nurturing Boys, and really tracked through boy development. That's the primary focus of that book and thinking about what's happening with boys in different moments of development and what they need. And there is a section on a boy's emotional life, but 
I wanted to really develop that into a full book because in, in 25 years of doing this work, I've just seen a lot of patterns and habits with boys and, and young men and wanting to think about how I could define a boy's emotional journey as clearly as possible and and really more than anything, wrap some practices around helping boys develop what I call emotional muscles that they need now wherever they are in their development. And they will certainly need for the rest of their lives as adult men, as husbands, as fathers themselves. And so, you know, there are some pretty scary statistics out there that adult men lead. And every time I'm reminded of those statistics, you know, it's easy to fall into a lot of despair and hopelessness when you do. But, you know, where I want to go, where I want to challenge parents to go is let's do everything in our power to push against those. You know, the fact that adult men lead the stats for infidelity, internet pornography, substance abuse, suicide, and these really scary categories that the common denominator in all those being, it's a male's attempt to numb out or shut down whatever it is that they're feeling and taking that emotion in some really destructive directions. And so I want to be working toward the opposite. How do we help males in this world, boys, adolescent guys, and adult men name and navigate their experience, you know, move in healthy direction so that we can start to change those stats. And, and so that was really my intention. And, and again, just 25 years of sitting with boys and their families and seeing evidence of a lot of unhealthy habits that I want to help parents think through on the front side of development. So those boys move into adult manhood, they've been practicing some healthier, different things all along the way. That's my great hope. Yeah, I love that goal. It's such a wonderful one. So let's talk about, before we get into other specifics, like if we're having these struggles with males, if boys and men are the leaders in these alarming categories, then paint us a picture of what the goal should be. Um, What should a healthy male look like? Um, Help us get that picture. I'd love to. And you know, it's interesting, Brooke, when I wrote the book, Raising Emotionally Strong Boys, my publisher said, you know, would you be willing to write a workbook for boys to go along with this? And and I did. I wrote a workbook called Strong and Smart. And I laughed the other day with a mom. She has a seven-year-old son. And she said, David, I bought the workbook for my son and I'm working it through with him. But honestly, I've been using a ton of it with my 37-year-old husband. And I laughed. <laughs> Oh, I love so that. hard. She was like whispering when she said it, like that was illegal. And I'm like, that's legal. Like it's, I didn't have 37 year old men in mind when I wrote the workbook, but I'm great with whoever it fits with because, you know, we laugh about that, but there are a lot of 37 year olds, 40 year olds, 47 year olds who didn't have practice developing in these places. And one of the things I say in the front side of the book to your great question, it's never too late. So for any parent listening, wherever the males in your life may be, we can pick up right here. If he's seven, if he's 37, it's never too late. Turns out that age old saying of you can't teach an old dog new tricks is really wrong. You can. You can. I'm living proof of that. I'm an old dog myself and I've learned some new tricks lately. And so (laughs) I really want to encourage any parent listening to hold on to that as we think about what it looks like to build emotional strength. But if I were going to give the Cliff Notes definition, I think it is a male learning to name and navigate their experience. And as simple as that sounds, Brooke, I think it's really complicated for a lot of males in this world. Uh And so... 
that would be my Cliff Notes definition. We can talk even deeper about the mechanics. Yeah, tell me what that, what that looks, looks like. like. What what does that look like in a man's life? Well, I talk a lot in the the very beginning of this book about teaching boys what I call the three R's, and the three R's are recognize, regulate, repair. And recognize is, you know, learning to pay attention to the signs and signals my body's giving me when I have an emotional response. And that's different for every person. But I teach it to boys kind of like, you know, the dashboard of a car. Like, you know how our car will signal us. This light comes on if the tire is low. This light comes on if I need to put gas in the tank. This light comes on if the oil needs changing. And often those indicator lights are kind of minor things, but I've got to pay attention. If I don't, the tire's going to go flat. Car's going to run out of gas, you know, and and so I've got to pay attention to these things. Sometimes it's a more significant indicator light. It's like a check engine light. And again, the longer I go ignoring those signs and signals, I could do some real damage to the vehicle. The same is true for our emotional experience. You know, I think about the classic book, The Body Keeps the Score. You know, our bodies do keep score. And so the longer we ignore these signs and signals our body gives us, if we carry chronic stress in our bodies for long periods of time, it will show up. It has a physical presentation at some point. So that's the recognize of the three R's. The regulate is really... You know, when my nervous system goes into a heightened state of arousal, how can I employ some calming strategies, some good calming and coping strategies? That's the regulate. And then repair is taking ownership and doing any needed relational work. And I talk a lot in the book about how boys have a real tendency to swing between blame and shame. And unless we teach that healthy middle ground of ownership, they will simply spend the rest of their lives. And my definition of blame is discharge pain. My definition of shame is self-content. Neither of those places are healthy. If I'm just going to spend the rest of my life discharging pain on the people I love or moving towards shame and self-contempt, I'm not helping myself. I'm certainly not helping my relationships. And so repair is really learning to take ownership and do any needed relational work. And the long game would be, the great hope would be, the more skilled boys become in the first two R's and recognize and regulate, they don't even need repair as often because they're doing the good work of naming and navigating in ways that that third R just is not as needed. So those would be my foundational ingredients of what it means to be emotionally strong. I love that. And I, you know, I can see in my own home having two teenage boys now. You may not believe this, David, but I, my oldest is a senior this year and uh, my youngest is a freshman. I mean, just where does the time go? Right. But, um, but we have these conversations in our home. I see everything that you're talking about reflected in my home and it, it looks different in different, different kids, right? Different ones have maybe different. Um, more struggle in different places, but I see it. We just didn't name it that. We're going through that process of helping them to recognize what their body is saying and what they're doing and learning to regulate. And I have found, and maybe this is something that you could speak to as well, but I have found that sometimes a part of the regulate is just taking a step away. Yes. It's just saying, we need a break, you and I yes. both, because this is not, you know, we're, we're talking about this in terms of boys right now, but this is not, 
you know, necessarily a uh, something that is only for boys. I need to do this as well. I need to recognize my own, what my body is telling me. And there have been lots of times with one son in particular <laughs> that I need to, that I have had to say, we need to step apart from each other for a few minutes because we're not doing anything. What, what we're doing right now is not helping anything. Yes. It's only making it worse. So talk to us a little bit about that. How, you know, as part of helping them to, to recognize what's going on, training them to step away for a second when everything in their body, every fiber of their being is saying, go, go, go. What are some practical ways that we can say, no, 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 step back, just step yes. back for a minute? Oh, I love so much of what you're saying, Brooke. And I, I want to highlight something in particular. You said, you know, the thing that I talk about throughout this book that I want parents to hear and what you just said is that this is human work. This is not just kid work. This is not just male work. This is female work that all of us need to be able to name and navigate. And an equation I talk about throughout the book is time and space, time and space. I don't think parents could say that in their heads enough. Otherwise, what happens is, you know, back to that heightened state of arousal, we all go into those heightened states. That's just a normal part of being human. That's not bad. It's just a reality that we're going to experience when we have an emotional response. How do we employ calming and coping strategies? And you're 100% correct that we can do that best when we step away. When we stay in emotionally charged moments, whether that's with our spouse, our kids, a coworker, a friend, in those moments, every one of us is more likely to say or do something we're going to later regret, which is going to take us to that third R of repair. But if we will employ time and space and step away, and I have a, a roadmap, a blueprint for even how to do that best with kids and adolescents so that we can gain some perspective, so that we can do the work of regulation. What also happens in those moments is when we step away, we're interrupting what I call emotional tug of war. And think about the game of tug of war. Like the game of tug of war goes can go on forever as long as there's two people pulling on each side of the rope. As soon as one person lays down the rope, which is time and space, the game of tug of war is over and a big mistake we make. In fact, research would say the two biggest mistakes parents make in discipline is too much talk and too much emotion. And so think about it. Those are the ingredients of emotional tug of war right there. But if I'm setting down the rope, if I'm walking away and giving myself some space to take a breath, to do whatever calming strategies I need to do so that I can get to a regulated state, then I can share my calm with another person. In fact, that's one of the definitions of co-regulation I talk about in the book. When we're teaching this on the front side of development, or even when we're teaching it with adolescents who are struggling, co-regulation is sharing my calm, but I, I don't have calm to share unless I can get to that place myself. And so exactly. that's where it starts. In fact, I say very clearly on the front side of this book that, you know, every one of these practices is something we've got to have worked on ourselves. We can only take the kids we love as far as we've gone ourselves. So if you're a person who struggles greatly with regulation, it's going to be really hard for your kids to develop in that space because they need to be able to sit front row and see what it looks like on the grownups they trust the most in this world. Yeah. Today's episode is brought to you by our Psalms prayer calendar. The Psalms remind us of who God is and give our hearts strength to keep believing when it seems like the world is falling apart. And if all is well in our worlds, the Psalms prepare us for when it isn't. Get your 25-day prayer calendar that guides you through praying the Psalms for your family today 
by visiting millionprayingmoms.com forward slash pray dash the dash word dash challenge, or just find the link in today's show notes at millionprayingmoms.com. Absolutely. That is so wonderful. We had a prime example of this just night before last. My senior plays football and he's actually injured right now, but he's still going to football practices and things like that. So he doesn't get home from school until a little bit later. And my husband and I have already eaten dinner by the time he gets home and we're sitting in the family room watching. It may have been the night that that Aaron Judge hit number, what was it, 62? Um, Mm -hmm. Was it 62, I think? So we're watching. My husband's a big Yankees fan. So we're watching on, you know, just hanging on every at bat and, and, uh, whatnot. And so we're, we're in the zone and he comes in and he sits down in front of me on the stool that's in front of the couch. And I could tell that he wanted to talk to me. And as the conversation went on, I could also tell that he had put some thought into how he was going to talk to me, which I really appreciate from him. I I really do. Like this was something that he knew was going to be a conversation. And he, he also knew that I might not agree with the conclusion that he had come to, but he had thought it through and come to me in a respectful and good way. And we did end up having kind of a heated conversation about it. It wasn't what I would have called a, a major argument, but there were some, some, you know, some heat to it. And I finally just said, let's just sit on it. I'm going to pray about it. You pray about it. Dad's going to pray about it. We're all going to just sit on this for a minute. And what we did was we just slept on it. And the following morning, I had to pick him up from school. As I mentioned, he's injured right now. So I had to pick him up from school to go to a doctor's appointment. And my husband said, my husband couldn't go with me. And he said, so what are, what are, what are you guys going to do on, on the trip there? Cause it takes us about an hour to get there. And I said, well, we're going to talk about, we're going to finish the conversation that we had last night. And the reason was because we had had time to step back yes. and just think. And I had had time to pray and ask the Lord, what do you want me to say about this? Because in the moment, I had all kinds of things that I could have said in response to what he brought to the table, but none of them would have helped the situation at all. And so just stepping back was one of the best things that we could have done. And you know what? We had a fantastic conversation about it on the way to the doctor the next day. He's 17 years old, almost 18. And so some of the decision rests with him. Like he needs to make a decision. Now that we've had this conversation, he needs to be able to go with it. I need to give him some freedom to make that decision. But I feel like he really heard me and if we had gone with it in the moment, I don't think he would have heard me at all. And so it was just kind of a perfect example of of this at work so that there was no need. As you said, there was no need for the repair section because we did it the right way to start with, yes. which was so helpful. I love all the wisdom you brought to that. I love that. And, and, and that's that great modeling, you know, of being able to say like, Hey, let's pause right here. Let's put it, let's put a pen in that. And then let's revisit it when we've had some rest, when we're in a more regulated space. Like that's everything I'm talking about and how I think that can change the game. Yeah, it really does. And I will tell you, it took some work to get there. When we first started, when I first started pressing the pause button on him, he did not like it. Um, He didn't want me to press the pause button. And it was hard. Sometimes I would press the pause button and then I would break it and go back and say something because I just felt like I had to. But it's like a muscle. Anytime you do something over and over and over again, it gets easier to do. And I think 
once you practice it, both parties, you know, he's not a three-year-old anymore that can't be reasoned with. He's a 17-year-old that can see clearly that one route versus the other route is better. And so it becomes something that you can do with more ease and regularity in your family. So I just wanted to give a personal you know, application of that, that it really does make a huge difference, um, even in our home. And Brooke, can I throw this out too, as you were talking through that story, you know, another practical example I would offer to parents when you were talking about being in the car, you know, I think there are a lot of tense conversations, tense moments that happen in the car. I would encourage any parent listening. Here's a way to put these ideas we're talking about into practice. You know, if you are Heading out the door tomorrow morning, feeling the stress that I think we inevitably feel as parents when we're trying to get out the door at the crack of dawn on a school morning (laughs) and getting kids to where they're supposed to be and us to work. I want to challenge you. One of the practices I talk about in the book is to narrate your experience. Like I want you to say things like, you know what? I feel some stress in my body because we left five minutes later than I wanted to. So at the next red light, I'm going to pause and I'm going to do 60 seconds of some deep breathing if you want to do that with me and see if I can't create some settling effect. Or I'm going to turn on some worship music. Let that just kind of wash over me. I want kids to hear the grownups they trust narrating their experience in that way, saying, here's what it looks like. Here's what it looks like to be human. Here's what it looks like to navigate stress in a healthy way. Yes. Otherwise, we're like moving in again, too much talk, too much emotion. We should have left five minutes earlier. Do you see what happens? Do you see how stressed we are? You know, it's like nothing productive, nothing constructive is happening. And then it just escalates from there. Yes, absolutely. And then we let kids out of the car and that's their first big encounter of the day that kind of sets the stage for the remainder of the day, as opposed to if we could employ some of these calming and coping strategies in front of them, with them in ways that allow them to see it, to practice it, and then again, can set the stage for a really different kind of morning sometimes. So I love that you were walking us through a real life example of what that looks like. And I just wanted to add that to the list. Yeah, absolutely. I love that so much. And it really is important, I think, for us to, you know, as parents, we want I feel this pressure. I want my kids to think that I have it together, you know, that I, that, that I am someone they can model and emulate and, and that I, that I have a certain level of maturity. But I think it's even more important. It's not wrong to want to have a certain level of maturity, but I think it's even more important to allow our children to see that we're human, like you said, and that we need Jesus just as much as they do. And that we get angry and we get upset and we get frustrated and we get stressed and we get flustered, but that there's a healthy way to handle that. And that kind of modeling for them is just priceless. So I appreciate that so much. All right, let's talk about, you said a quote in chapter two that I want to dive into a little bit. You say traditional masculinity is associated with suppressing emotion and self-reliance. And then you ask the question, what would it be like to raise a generation of boys who saw vulnerability as a strength. So I want to talk about that, but let me give you a little bit of a conversation that I read online that is influencing the way that I am thinking about this question right now. I was reading a conversation between college sports coaches the other day online, and they were speaking to this on some level. And one coach was lamenting that kids today are not able to handle what they called hard coaching and complained that they had to coach kids with with what they called what they referred to as kid gloves. Some parents were chiming in in the comments and saying, 
that, you know, that we're raising weak kids. Um, others were saying, well, kids want to be coached hard, but they want to know that you care about them while you're doing it. And other parents would chime in or coaches would chime in and say, those kind of kids are just soft and they're not who you should be looking for when you're trying to build a team or whatever. They just can't hack it or they're not gritty enough. And it was a really interesting conversation. And you saw tons of different perspectives from parents on the way that we should be training our men in specific to be mentally tough. And so I, you know, I can agree with that on some level. I want to raise men who are mentally tough. And I know that there are moms uh, listening and dads listening today who want to raise women who are mentally tough as well. I want to raise my children to be able to endure hard things because they are going to have to endure hard things, not just in the sports world, which I do think, and you talk about this some in the book, that the sports world does help prepare us for some of those things. But I would like for us to talk about the balance between being mentally strong and being vulnerable and the way that the world doesn't necessarily appreciate that and how we can help our kids with that. It's a great, thoughtful question, Brooke. I love that. I'd love to speak into that. And, you know, the first thing that I would say is this. I put a quote in the book that I can't take a bit of credit for because it came from two of my dear friends who I love and respect and trust their voices so much in this world. Jay and Catherine Wolf, if you have not come across an amazing organization called Hope Heals, I would strongly recommend you find these remarkable folks online. I'm purposely not going to tell you anything about their story because I want you to discover it yourself. But they're some of the most hope-filled people I know in this world because they have experienced deep struggle. When you talk about hard things, these dear folks have known hard things uh, like some of us may never know in this life. And one of the things that Jane Captain, their proud parents of two boys, pray over their sons consistently. I put this quote in the book is um, it's from a, a great book they wrote called Suffer Strong. Every night they pray over their sons. God made you to do the hard things in the good story he is writing for your life. God made you to do the hard things in the good story he is writing for your life. And I love everything about that prayer. And I think we talk a lot with our kids, wonderfully so, about the good story. Living in a good story with a good God who loves us greatly. I want us to keep talking about that. But equally so, I want us to talk about the hard things we have been promised. Romans says we're going to groan with all of creation this side of heaven. And that groaning for toddler age kids may look like somebody steals your toy often on the playground or you fall down and skin your knee when you're trying to get steady in the world. You know, in elementary school, that groaning is going to look like you're going to get left out at times. You're not going to get picked for a team at recess. You know, that groaning is going to get greater and greater, harder and harder. And I want us to always be about, to your great question, preparing kids for those hard things. And, you know, the anxiety research would tell us anxiety in our country is now considered to be a childhood epidemic. Our numbers are so high. And the research would tell us that the two biggest parenting mistakes we make in that space is escape and avoidance. We see our kids struggling with something that's hard and we extract them from it. Whatever overwhelms you, I don't want you to have to encounter. And we couldn't be doing them a greater disservice when we move in that direction, as opposed to being with them in the struggle, supporting them in the struggle, reminding them of that great truth. God made you for hard things. So 
I share all of that to say, I love when you talked about the word balance, because I think it is both. I really do. So for example, when kids are navigating something like bullying, they are going to need some support. We're not just going to leave them on their own in that space. You know, we're going to figure out what does not too much, but not too little support look like in navigating those kind of spaces as they navigate hard things like that. But what I want to say, you know, even as we talk a little bit about the context of athletics, and I love that you noted that I believe strongly in that context. I really do. But it's interesting to me. I even had this conversation recently with a parent in my office who said something very similar to what was voiced on the front side of that question. And I think there is a mentality in, you know, coaching sometimes of kind of old school coaching that involves a lot of yelling, potentially a lot of shaming that I don't believe is in any way effective. And I think there are better and different ways to motivate and challenge kids and help them move through hard things in the context of athletics and the context of life in general. And sadly, there is a coach in our community right now who's made national news, who is widely noted for shaming, screaming, cursing, even shoving players at different points on the way. And I don't endorse or support anything in that space. And so you're hearing me very much say, I want kids to experience hard things. That's not the kind of hard things I'm talking about. And so what does it look like back to your great word to find balance in those places that they're going to have opportunity to experience hard and healthy ways that we're not extracting them, that we're not gravitating as parents toward escape and avoidance. You know, I often will have parents say, do you think it's a good idea for him to finish a hard season of sports? Absolutely. I do. Absolutely. Now, if he's being shame some of the categories we just talked around. No, that's a different, that's harm. That's not helpful, hard, that's harm. And so we want to be very clear in distinguishing those things. But I think that balance is allowing for both working through hard things and developing some emotional strength in those spaces. So I think it's going to look different for every kid and certainly going to look different in different stages of development. But I would ask parents to even think right now, based on the ages of your son, where is a context where you would say he's getting to practice some hard things in the good story. And if you can't come up with an answer, what would it look like to create a context? Because I want kids to always be in some context where they're coming up against some discomfort. Because I talk in the book, I heard this years ago, and I love it. Discomfort is the price of admission to a meaningful life. And so I want kids to be bumping up against discomfort over and over to be developing the emotional muscles we're talking around. Yeah, that's so good. I can relate to that, David. There have been so many times with both of our kids when my gut reaction to whatever hard thing they were dealing with was to like just want to uproot them and move them and get away from it. And I think that's an entirely human response because we we don't want I was just sharing with someone the other day that going through something hard as an adult is one thing, but watching your child go through something hard is an entirely different thing. And it it just every, every instinct in us as parents wants to protect. But I think we have to understand what that actually means and that we can't necessarily protect everything. Let me, I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, Years ago, I, I know I'm probably not the only mother who, when her kids were young, would go into their bedrooms and pray over them. And even if we had like a, a horrible day and they were rotten, no good kids that day, I would go in and look at them asleep and think they were angels, right? That's just the way it, it kind of is. They look so sweet and pure when they're, when they're asleep. And this one particular night, 
I went in and I was praying over both of them. They were sharing a room at the time. They were, they were little. And all of a sudden I just got this, this thought, this wave came over me that of sorrow because they looked so sweet and pure. And I knew that the world, it was not going to be long before the world came for them. And I wanted to protect them. And so I prayed that night, Lord, would you keep them from evil? And that was just the prayer of my heart that night. And the next morning, as it happened, the very next morning, I went to a women's Bible study and there was a mom in my group whose children were older than mine. They were grown. I think they might've even been married at that point. So she had perspective I didn't have at that time. And she said, Brooke, you're praying for the wrong thing. Um, I was sharing with them about that moment. And and it wasn't that she said, you, you shouldn't pray, you should never pray, God keep them from evil. But the fact of the matter is that they are going to encounter evil. To put it in terms of what we've just been talking about, they are going, the Bible promises us in this world, you will have trouble. We shouldn't be surprised by it. And what she actually said I should be praying instead of only praying, Lord, keep them from evil was Lord in the day of evil, let them stand. Let them be able to fight evil when it comes. And in order to do that, and and David, I'm 44 years old, almost 45 years old. And I, I surprise myself sometimes with how long it takes me to really get something. But it shouldn't be a surprise to me when that happens that my 17-year-old or my 15-year-old still hasn't quite gotten it. If it took me 44 years to get it, then you know I need to give them grace um, yes. as well to get things. Yes. But they have to encounter those hard things in order to be able to mature and to grow. And, and the privilege for us as parents is not just to remove them from everything hard, but to walk alongside them while they're in our home and teach them how to handle those things so that when they go off into the real world, they are able. I couldn't love that more, Brooke. You know, I, I, I'm saying in the book that our kids are developing people and we are developing people. You know, we're not finished products. And so I love the truth and the wisdom you bring to that equation in, in even telling that story. And I just would challenge every parent listening, lean into that great reminder today. Absolutely. We're still learning. They're still learning. Why in the world would I expect them to have perfect mastery around this if I'm still working it through myself? Right. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's switch gears a little bit. You touched on this just a second in what you said just a minute ago. There is an entire chapter in the book that I thought was just fantastic that is talking about anxiety and depression in boys. And I would like to talk about that because these particular challenges don't always look the same in boys as they do in girls. So help us. And, and, you know, we hear a lot. In fact, your colleague, Sissy wrote an entire amazing book on, on this for girls. And if you're a girl mom who's listening right now, I highly recommend her book and I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Um, but I would love for us to talk about this in terms of boys. Help us know as moms and dads, how to recognize anxiety and depression in our boys. What does it look like? And when do we know or how do we know when it's time to get help? It's hmm. a great question. And I would say it does often, not always, but often present differently with boys. In fact, anxiety with a high percentage of boys looks like ADHD. 
So it's difficult to identify the difference between the two often. I, in fact, I couldn't even tell you how many boys I've seen over the years who were misdiagnosed with ADHD, where there was actually an undercurrent of anxiety that was driving the behaviors we were seeing. Because for any one of us, if worry takes up a lot of my brain space, which it will, which it does, and you know occupies a lot of what I call cognitive real estate, then... In a classroom setting, I'm going to look under-focused. I'm going to look inattentive. In fact, I may look restless, fidgety, impulsive, all things that we would traditionally think more about with ADHD. So it's easy to miss. And those things sometimes, Brooke, can look like just non-compliant behaviors, like anxious boys get really rigid and controlling. We talk a lot about a power and control phenomena that's always in play when anxiety is in the mix. Like to the degree that I feel out of control internally, I want to try to control something externally to manage that. People, outcomes, situations, circumstances. So those kids can get really rigid and inflexible. They don't want to try anything new unless they know they'll be perfect at it. And we can see that it's just non-compliance or disobedience when, again, there may be an undercurrent of anxiety. With depression, think on when any one of us thinks about depression, the first word that would likely come to mind is sad. And our definition, our cultural definition and understanding of depression is based more on what it looks like with adult females, how it presents, that it will be potentially sad, lethargic. I have difficulty getting out of bed. I'm unmotivated. It can look like that with boys, but I would say often it doesn't. More depressed males in this world look angry irritable. I had a mom years ago say to me, it's like he wakes up with this chronic irritability, like on the wrong side of the, woke up on the wrong side of the bed daily. And it's kind of this low grade chronic irritability that anything could kind of set him off. I would argue a high percentage of adult males in this world who are kind of ragey and angry, like those men that you just think you're about 30 seconds away from road rage, it seems the least of things kind of set you off, probably have some depression in the mix. And again, we don't think as much about anger and volatility when we think about the word depression. So we're going to have to look a little deeper to identify some of these things. And I'd say to your great question about when to get help, one of my favorite things, Brooke, that we do in our practice is we do a lot of what we call parent consultations. And we do those with parents all over the country. I do them with parents all over the globe. And we can do it by Zoom or by phone, and it's when parents are calling in to just ask some questions on behalf of their kids. So, you know, they're just sometimes asking questions like, does this sound normal to you or does this sound concerning? Or here are some things we're seeing. What would you recommend? And I love just kind of creating a to-do list with parents and thinking through based on their observations what they're seeing, how we could layer in some great support along the way for kids. And you know, sometimes that may involve a recommendation of seeking out some counseling in your local community. But at times, there's some great things we can be doing as parents that is enough support to kind of jumpstart kids moving forward again in a particular place of their development where they might have gotten kind of stuck. So I love recommending that to parents. You could do that with your pediatrician anytime you're in question. You know, we live in a day and age where we just understand so much more than we did 50 years ago. And we don't have to worry and wonder. We have a lot of great tools and resources at our disposal. So I would absolutely encourage any parent who's wrestling with, gosh, is this just kind of some normal adolescent angst or is this something that maybe is fitting that definition David talked about of depression? Then put another set of eyes on it. Take them to your pediatrician. Let them do a depression rating scale there. You know, schedule a consultation 
put another set of eyes on it is what I would say. So you don't have to worry and wonder. And then we can think through what kind of support do we want to put in play to help this amazing kid keep moving forward in their development. So that would be my strong recommendation. Yeah. And I've heard you say that before. That's why I smiled when I said that. that. That's a David sentence that I've heard before. Put another set of eyes on it. I just think that's never a wrong thing. It's never Not a wrong thing. And at all. Yes. And you tell the story in the book of several boys that maybe went through several counselors before landing um, with you and, and really having to say to parents, this is not optional. You need to teach. You, you have to do this, you know, being able to say that. Because I think most of the time boys, and, and maybe not all the time, a lot of boys may not want another set of eyes on it. But as parents, it's our job, again, to protect our children. And if you think there's something going on, it's just not ever going to hurt anything to have another set of eyes. And maybe you just have to say, this is what we're doing. And it's not optional Absolutely. for that child. Yeah, it's, it's a part of an equation I talk about in the book of just prioritizing health over happiness. You know, I don't know right. a single boy I've ever heard. who's like, mom and dad, would you take me to the pediatrician so I can get a finger prick? I would love that right now. Can we go for a well visit? <laughs> that sounds so fun. <laughs> right. But we do those things because we know they're a part of our kids' well-being. And, and we prioritize teeth cleanings and pediatric well visits because we know this is a part of their overall well-being. And Brooke, I'd even laugh with you. I use the example, which is a little harsh in the book, but I think is maybe telling, you know, to your great point about how many boys really aren't that interested in counseling. I honestly think a lot of boys and adolescent males approach counseling the way adult men approach a colonoscopy. Like everybody, <laughs> everybody knows it's a good idea. No one is interested in doing it. And it feels very invasive and like you're up in my business. And it's like, but yet we know it's a good preventative practice. And so what if we were to just take that kind of approach to this work as opposed to believing that he's going to arrive at a point of saying, I'd love to go to counseling and talk about my feelings, you know, but knowing that sometimes or I'd love to have this conversation with you, even if he doesn't need counseling, that we're pressing forward and helping boys develop these emotional muscles. You know, I, I laugh with parents about the workbook, you know, don't wait on him to say, I'd love to go through that workbook with you, you know, but just saying, hey, this is something we're going to do. Found out about this resource. This will be good for I love, I have a dad who's doing it right now and saying, he's like, buddy, I need this as much as you. This is for both of us. We're going to do it together. And so I think it's a gift when we come at it in those ways. Yeah, it absolutely is. I love that so much. Sometimes we just have to put our parent shoes on and just do it, right? Yes. <laughs> so yes. Just yes. model it. I love that. All right. Well, as parents, what do we need to be praying for God to teach our sons as it relates to their emotional wellness. So I would love it if you could give us maybe some of your favorite verses or passages, if you can, or even just prayers in general that we should be praying that might direct the parents that are listening today and how to pray for their kids as they go through this. I would love to. And I, I would love to share a couple in particular that I mentioned in the book that I love that I am practicing myself. There is... You know, Eugene Peterson is someone we lost in the last uh, couple of years, and he just a great man, a great passionate follower of Christ in this world who wrote the message. He translated the scriptures into the message, and he translated Philippians 4, 6, 7 in this way. I love it. He said, don't fret or worry. Instead of worrying, pray. Let petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers, letting God know your concerns. Before you know it, 
a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good will come and settle you down. I love those words. Will come and settle you down. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life. And when I think about those words, settle you down, I think that's so much of what I talk about in that second R, like, do you have practices and strategies? I walk parents through in the book and the workbook, helping boys come up with what I call a top five list. There's not a kid who's going to leave my office without coming up with a top five list of coping strategies that help settle you down to the truth of that scripture. And that again, as you and I are talking, every one of us needs those. Every parent listening, I challenge you, do you have a top five list? You know, when you're reading through this book, come up with yours with your kids so that again, they can see this is human work. This is grown up work. And I also love Matthew 5, 8 uh, and the translation from the message that says you're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. Let me read that again. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and heart put right then you can see God in the outside world. And I think it reminded me a little of the beautiful story you told on the front side of that conversation when we talked about time and space, that you were allowing yourself to step away so you could get your mind and heart right, that you could have a different kind of conversation with your son. And I would say in the process of doing that, you gave yourself a chance to pray, to reflect, to invite God into that space. And so that to me is a living translation of that scripture right there and and what it looked like to get my mind and heart right so that I can see God in the outside world, so that I could see the very things you were talking about. Like this kid I love is a developing person. This kid I love shouldn't be have developed mastery around all these things. This kid I love is still figuring things out the same way I am. And employing something like time and space allows me to see myself, to see my son, to see God in this equation differently. And so those two passages in particular things I find myself going back to over and over again, working to practice myself first and then teach my kids second. Yeah, that's so great. You and I are both glasses wearers and I often equate this concept to the idea of just putting my glasses on. I can't see well without my glasses. And when I let myself, you know, when I need to calm down, it's like putting my glasses on so that I can see clearly because without them, I can't. And if I can't see clearly, I'm going to run into things and I'm going to hurt people or hurt myself. If we can just put our spiritual glasses or our emotional glasses on, then it can change the way that we see what's happening around us and in turn will change the way that we interact with it. Um, So I love that so much, David. Thank you so much again for being here. It is always, always a pleasure to learn from you and to get your wisdom. I just love being able to chat with you. I would love it if you could end us today by telling everyone where they can find out more about you and how they can get a copy of your book. They can also get it in the show notes, but just tell them where they can intersect with you and stay in contact with what you're doing for the kingdom. Thank you, friend. Well, I will first say right back at you. It is a gift anytime I get the opportunity to be in conversation with you and and thank you for the life-giving work you are doing in this world. I'm so incredibly grateful. And thank you for inviting me to tell folks where they can find my stuff. Uh, you could find really everything we do if you were to jump on our website, raisingboysandgirls.com. Raisingboysandgirls.com houses 
our podcast. It'll take you straight to our podcast. We've got several seasons of content that we hope is helpful for parents. It'll take you straight to all the books. You are so generous to mention. My dear friend, Sissy Goff wrote, I think the best book out there on girls and anxiety. Every book we've written is to be found in that space. And we're just trying to push out as much good and helpful content to parents as possible. So it'll even take you to our Instagram account where we will make these little two and three minute videos for parents like, hey, here's something I learned today in my office or here's something I'm talking about with kids. As we see evidence of all the different ways that kids and adolescents are struggling in this day and age and just some helpful things. So every bit of that content you could find easily at RaisingBoysAndGirls.com. Awesome, guys. I encourage you to go right out and check that out right now. There is so much wonderful stuff there for you that you're going to love the wisdom that they offer. All right, David, thank you again for being with us. Till next time, friends, the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look with favor on you and give you peace. Thanks for joining me for today's episode of the Million Praying Moms podcast. You can connect with other praying women by following us on Instagram at Million Praying Moms or at the Million Praying Moms website where you'll find tools to guide you as a praying mom. And don't forget to download your free copy of my resource, How to Pray God's Word for Your Children. This quick read will have you praying God's Word for your family within the next couple of hours. Seriously, find all the links you need at MillionPrayingMoms.com. Have you ever considered yourself a messenger? Whether it's mics like this, bookshelves around the world, stages to take, or art to make, or perhaps businesses to build, it's time we start testifying truth unashamedly, creatively, and in love. My name is Tamara Andress, the host of the Messenger Movement Podcast, which is designed to catalyze Christians to speak, write, build, and testify. If you're ready to turn your message into a movement and want to run with other messengers doing the thing at scale globally, Search and follow the Messenger Movement podcast on your favorite podcast platform today or lifeaudio.com.